Now, this morning we're continuing our, our current sermon series entitled Vintage Mission. And the whole heart and the intended purpose behind this series has been for us to intentionally revisit a few of the crucial topics that have not only shaped our identity as a church, but has kept us together, united us on mission to partner with God to see His kingdom come here in Las Vegas as it is in heaven this morning. We're going to discuss the topic of sanctification and and God's call to joyful obedience. In fact, our text this morning may be one of the most important, albeit daunting passages on sanctification in all of the Bible. In fact, our, our text today is often misunderstood, it's often misapplied and misquoted, and the reason for this is, well, if you, if you get the things that this text presents to us, if you get it out of order, well, then we're in trouble. <laughs> it's easy to get these things out of order, grace, faith, and our works. And the truth is, there is a divine order to these things. An order that is extremely important because if we, if we miss it, if we get these out of order, then we can completely risk misunderstanding grace, misunderstanding faith, and quite possibly misunderstanding God Himself. The reality is that our text this morning, there's, there's a ton happening. And my goal is to help make sense of it both practically and relationally, especially regarding who Jesus is and what He has done and how you and I are to live in light of these truths. So if you have a Bible, please open it to Philippians chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, we moved the bookshelf inside, and I think that looks great over there. Um, I would love for you to get up and grab a Bible if you need, and you can keep it. It's our gift to you. And not only that, but we got a bunch of new resources in this week. So there's several new books on that bookshelf, and they're free. Please feel free to stop by there on your way out and grab some books and take them home. Say hi to those at the table. We'd love to, to talk to you. Philippians 2. We're going to be in verses 12 through 18. If you are there, and if you are able to, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord from Ephesians. I'm sorry, we're not in Ephesians, guys. That was my bad. Philippians chapter 2. Goodness. Hear the Word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. I was about to preach a different sermon. Therefore, my dear friends... Just as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life, Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the Word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, I thank You for Your Word. I pray that we would be not just hearers of the Word, but doers. But first, before we accomplish that task. Lord, would you give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you've accomplished for us, that we might rest in the fact that we do not need to earn and we have done nothing to deserve your love and grace, and that all of this call to obedience is out of an understanding that you have already completed everything that we need. And so we trust you, God. I pray that this morning for those who came in weary, that you would give them rest 
Lord, would you strengthen their faith this morning? For those who have came in that do not have faith, would you gift them with the gift of faith that they might know you and love you and follow you? Ultimately, God, I pray that you'd be glorified this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and redeemer, and we love you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, in the beginning of my sermon, I, I, I prepared an illustration, and it's kind, of, it's kind of crazy how this worked out because it, it's about you. <laughs> I didn't realize my dad and, and mom and my brother came all across from the other part of town and they're visiting with us today. And so I don't mean to embarrass you, this is just a coincidence, okay? <laughs> and so um, it's wild, but uh, I'm grateful that you guys are here this morning. But like most young boys growing up, my dad was my hero. I, I adored him. I wanted nothing more than to be just like him. My dad is tall and strong. He was a soldier, bravely served our country overseas. He's a man with a high moral code, an extremely gifted guitar player and singer. I promise, I didn't know you were coming. Um, <laughs> one of my most vivid childhood memories was when my dad played guitar. He would sing in the church band. I remember him preaching, even watching him as he prayed, prepared beforehand. I remember wanting to be just like him. Now, some of those traits I, I have accomplished, and, and some of them I, I have not. And as I got older and became a parent myself, I have three wonderful children, I realized that the best I can do for them is to be an inspiration, to be, be a teacher, to point them to the Lord. I can't, I, my dad had no power to change me. He had no power to, to equip me in, other than to give me a, an inspiration, right? Here's what I mean. Although my dad taught me and he inspired me, he had no power to change me. He had no power to give me faith or produce in me any specific characteristics or traits. You see, the only way that he could have done that is if he would have physically entered into my body and handed over his skill, his faith, his accomplishments, and his abilities. In a similar way, our text this morning is focused on living like Jesus, that we would be, have our eyes fixed upon him just like we sang that we would look to Him, that we would be inspired by Him, that we would desire to, to live like Him. But here's the thing, unlike my dad who had no ability to change me, God the Holy Spirit does reside in us. Those who have surrendered to Him as Lord and Savior, He resides in us. And He works in us to change our desires and to produce in us godliness. He sanctifies us. He makes us more and more like Christ. But if we're not careful, here's what can happen. As we pursue obedience and a life that looks like Jesus... Well, we realize that following Jesus is tough. We had a, our discipleship group this past week and we discussed this very topic. One of the guys says, man, following Jesus is hard. And it is. And if we're not careful, it, it feels like this series of ups and downs as we try to do our best and try to be good and try to be better only to realize that, man, it's, this is really hard. And it, it's it's. Even harder when we read verses like Hebrews 4.15 that says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Without sin, Jesus was tempted in every way that you are, but He did not sin. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life in complete obedience to God. And then we read verses like Matthew 5.48 where Jesus says this, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, Jesus, He never sinned. He is perfect, and now He commands us as His sons and daughters to also be perfect just as He is. Now, I don't know about you, but this is extremely overwhelming. 
almost defeating. Because let's get real for a moment. No matter how hard I try, I cannot be perfect. If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. She's sitting in the front row. Uh, My kids are in the back. They will gladly share every problem (laughs) and the reality of me failing at this venture. The truth leads me to wonder at times, how could any of us ever have hope to live lives that look like Christ? I know in my own life there are moments when I feel like I've made some progress. You know, I, I feel like I'm, be, I'm closer to God, and it's in those moments that like temptation and anxiety and depression, they seem to be distant enemies, only to find out later that they were sleeping in the guest room plotting their next attack. And then I, and I fail, and then I lose hope that I will ever grow to be like Jesus. What about you? Have you lived a sinless life? Have you reached perfection? Well, if you are human and and your answer is no, our text this morning provides us some some much-needed good news. Look at verse 12. Paul says, therefore, now, we have to stop here, because that word is pointing us backwards to what Paul has already said in chapter 2. And so we need some context here. We need to remind ourselves, what is Paul saying? And as we look back in chapter 2, we see that Paul has detailed for us the humility, the death, and the resurrection. He's detailed out for us the lordship and the sovereignty of Jesus. In fact, he says Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but rather He made Himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that He humbled Himself and humbled Himself even to the point of death and death on a cross. And so God now has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name above all names. That every knee and will, will bow and should bow eternally. And not only that, every mouth will eternally confess that Jesus is Lord, both on earth and under the earth and above the earth. Jesus is Lord. Therefore, Paul says, in light of those truths, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Paul here is addressing Christians. He's addressing those who have surrendered to Jesus as their Lord. He's addressing those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. They're no longer looking to themselves to save them. They're no longer relying on good works for salvation. They have trusted in Jesus. So he's speaking to those who know Jesus and follow Jesus. And Paul here, he's being a good pastor. He's being an encouraging pastor as he says, look guys, you're already doing this. He tells them, keep it up. Don't stop. Keep going. And that's what I want to say to you this morning, Christian. Keep going. Don't stop. Keep it up. Brothers and sisters, I think we can find encouragement here and motivation. You see, if you find in your life that you are growing in Christian maturity, realize that that growth is a result of God's grace at work in your life. That's God. That's not you. If you find yourself growing in the knowledge of the Lord, you find yourself like hating sin and loving the unlovable. Realize that's not you producing that in yourself. That is God's grace at work in your life. And celebrate that. Rejoice. Consider with me how Jesus was perfectly obedient to God. 
And yet, Jesus, He still died the death that we all deserve for the punishment of our sins. And now, if you are a follower of Jesus, if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, then Jesus has gifted you with that perfect life. His sacrificial death and His resurrection. And what that means is that you have been justified. When God looks at you, He sees you just as if you've never sinned and just as if you've always obeyed. That's good news. Not only that, but you have been gifted with the Holy Spirit. God Himself dwells in you and is with you. And He is the one who is empowering you to obey. And with these truths in mind, Paul says this, Now press on. Press on. Keep going. Don't stop. And with joy, continue to obey. Verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now we have to pause here for a moment because it's extremely important that we don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul is not telling us, work so that you might earn. He's also not saying, work so that you might maintain. We can't salvation. I also understand this is not a matter of teamwork between you and God in which you are doing your part and God is doing His part and together, a tag team, you guys accomplish the work of salvation. That's not at all what this is saying. But rather, Paul is saying work out your salvation. There's a huge difference here. We are not working to earn something. We are working out something. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, when Paul writes, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not what? From yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Here's why. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are not saved by our works, but rather we are saved for good works. Working out your salvation simply means that as Christians, we are on a lifelong adventure, a lifelong journey, a lifelong process of living out the faith that you and I have in Christ. In other words, Christ's likeness is something that we just keep on pursuing and keep on growing in. Now consider how this phrase, work out your own salvation. Consider how this isn't an instruction simply to the individual. It doesn't speak just to our obedience as individuals. It it does, but it's also bigger than this. You see, there's also a corporate dimension to this instruction, for it speaks to the working out of our collective corporate salvation within the church, within the body of Christ. It speaks as how you and I, friends, are to conduct as the church, how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to interact with one another, how we are to be obedient In other words, this call to obedience is both and. It's both a personal call and it's a communal call. It's a call to us as a church community to produce a gospel culture. That you and I would work to produce a gospel culture. Now, what does that mean, John? Is that just some sort of phrase that you came up with? Is this what is it? What is gospel culture? Well, this is something that we're working towards here at Mission Church, that we would have a culture of grace. And what that means and what it looks like is a shared experience of grace for the undeserving. That's why we start our service the way we do every Sunday, to those who are weary and need rest. This is a space in which you can come and not have to wear a mask. 
you can be weary and find rest. You can find hope if you're hopeless. See, it's a corporate incarnation that we are, that, that, of the biblical message in our relationships. It's the vibe, the feel, the tone, the values, the priorities of our church. It's found in our honesty and how we interact with one another, in our freedom, in gentleness, in humility, in cheerfulness. In other words, gospel culture is the total human reality of a church that is defined by and sweetened by the good news of the gospel. Are you with me? Mission Church, every church culture is communicating something. Would you agree with me? Every church is communicating something, not just by what they preach, but by how we live. And if those do not match, then we're confusing to the world and we're going to hurt people within the church. If a church is not positively positively communicating the gospel, both by what we preach and how we live, then we risk unsaying by our lives what we are saying with our words. And so Paul calls us, both as individuals and as a church, to live a life of gospel obedience. Does that make sense? Pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson, he calls this a long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction, which, if, you're, if we're to be honest, that sounds difficult, doesn't it? A long obedience in the same direction can be a difficult endeavor, especially as we live in this broken world, fallen world. However, we can be sure that we're not left to live this life of obedience on our own power. The good news is that you and I can work out our salvation because and only because God is at work in us. Look at verse 13. He says, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to His good purposes. purpose. Now verse 12 and verse 13, they speak to the fact that, that Jesus, He has given us a pattern. He's given us a rhythm for what a humble, others-focused, and God-glorifying life looks like. A life of obedience. What, is it, what does it look like? And it's a pattern that you and I, friend, are called to imitate. And this call to humble obedience should cause us to take a step back. And kind of look at our lives from a bird's eye view and consider these questions. Am I working out my salvation? Am I pursuing a life of obedience? Am I pursuing a life that lives and looks like Jesus? Am I pursuing a life that is leading other people to Jesus? Am I intent on pursuing a life of holiness? A life that is set apart from the world? Am I living as though I really believe that Jesus meant what He said? I don't know about you, but when things get hard and things get difficult, it's easy to give in and look for a shortcut, isn't it? When it comes to following Jesus, there there, there are no shortcuts. Following Jesus requires us to daily lift up our cross, pick it up, and die to ourselves and follow Him. I remember when I was a kid, I had a poster of the 1992 U.S. men's Olympic basketball team on my wall otherwise known as the Dream Team, the greatest basketball team to ever play. And next to it was a poster of the, the great Larry Bird. I remember dreaming of being able to play basketball just like the Birdman. I even had uh, number 33 on every jersey, every season. And I remember asking my coach, what do I need to do to play like him? What do I need to do to shoot three-pointers like Larry Bird? 
And the coach just laughed at me. I remember this very vividly. And he says, boy, you're going to need a bit more than a number on your back to become an athlete like him. Harsh to an eight-year-old, but the point is there are no shortcuts to becoming a professional athlete. It requires discipline, long workouts, a ton of practice, And so it is with the Christian's growth in Christ-likeness. We can't take a pill or eat some kale or or, or do CrossFit or or become a vegan and automatically become a sanctified person. Paul instructs us we must work out our salvation every day, and we do so by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And the truth is, this is hard, this long obedience in the same direction. We live in a fast pace, fast food, microwave, internet culture, this process of sanctification, is of becoming like Jesus, it's more like a crockpot meal than it is a happy meal. It's a slow process of living faithfully. When days are tough, following Jesus, faithful, faithfully repenting of your sin, faithfully gathering with the saints, faithful obedience in the same direction even when no one's watching, even when no one cares. Church, my prayer for you as your pastor is that God would ignite a passion within you for ordinary obedience. It doesn't have to be flashy. It's ordinary obedience to Christ. That you and I would live every day following the pattern of Jesus all along clinging to the truth that it is God who began the good work in us He is the one who saved us. We did nothing to earn or deserve our position before Him. And He is the one who is now working in us to grow us into Christ-likeness. And when Jesus returns or we stand before Him on our last day, He is the one who will glorify us. He is the one who is working. And we could trust Him. Friend, if you're a Christian, God is already at work in you. And now we work out because God works in. We work out because God works in. And we can be confident and comforted by the truth that God will accomplish His good purposes. He will do it. Isn't that comforting? Isn't it comforting to know that you aren't alone? That God Himself is with you? That we are not alone because God is at work and He he will accomplish His good purposes in us and through us. And the truth is, that moment that you surrender to the power of God within you, That's when your obedience will no longer become a slodge, like a burden or a battle, but rather obedience will be a delight. It will be a joy. And the question is begging to be asked now, how? What does this look like for us to be obedient? Now, our text doesn't give us a a, a giant picture of this, but it does give us an example, and so we're going to look at it from this angle. Verse 14 gives us an example of what this, looks, what this looks like. Paul simply says this, and it's extremely practical. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Sounds easy, right? Brothers and sisters, we are to live all of life doing everything we are called to do without grumbling, without arguing, and without complaining. Now, I don't know about you, but there are some days that I wake up in the morning and I feel like I'm a professional complainer. I've got the grumbling thing down. I don't think I'm alone in this. Perhaps you are with me. Think about it. We live in a time and space. We live in a society and a culture in which complaining is our primary language. 
All you have to do is scroll through social media and you see grumbling and complaining. Uh, Stand too long in the line at the grocery store and you hear grumbling and complaining. This is the language of our day. And if you have kids, you know this to be true, right? In my house, it takes place every day at dinner, (laughs) bath time, bedtime, grumbling, complaining, and arguing. I don't want to eat that. I don't care if you want to eat it or not. This is what you're eating. I don't want to take a bath. Well, you smell. <laughs> the water's too cold. The water's too hot. I want a snack. Well, if you would have eaten your dinner. This is every night, guys, okay? I'm just working out something right now, and I need your help. <laughs> I don't want to go to bed. I'm bored. And the list can go on forever. The truth is, we're born complainers, aren't we? We don't stop when we grow up. We just simply graduate from complaining about bedtime to complaining about work, complaining about relationships, complaining about the weather, complaining about politics, complaining about the church. I don't like the way they do this. I don't like the way they do that. There's a million other things. We are really good at this. I'm reminded of what Paul instructs us to do in this letter to the Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for what? The glory of God. Whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of God. Rather than complaining, God calls us to glorify Him. Glorify Him as you're waiting too long in the checkout at the grocery store. Glorify Him as your kids are complaining about the food. We are to worship God in everything that we do. All of it. And I think Paul points this out because the temptation to gripe and complain, it's a strong one. And here's why. We've already established this. Following Jesus is hard. It's difficult. Discipleship is not an easy road. Pursuing holiness. Giving generously. Practicing hospitality. Loving and putting others before ourselves. Sharing the Gospel. Let's be honest. It's hard. And this temptation to complain and argue is not only a personal temptation, but it's also a big temptation for us as a church. At some point, someone's going to let you down in here. What do you do? At some point, I'm not going to live up to your preferences. What do you do? Temptation to complain and argue and to leave, they're very strong I'm reminded of the griping and complaining and the detailed account of God's people in the wilderness. In the books Exodus and Numbers, we read about how God miraculously rescues His people out of slavery in Egypt and how God graciously provides for them. But they still found stuff to complain about. God didn't provide the food they wanted to eat. They had bread from heaven, but they had no meat. I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but that was pretty cool. (laughs) Cat in the hat this morning. Um, God didn't provide it, what they wanted. They even rejected God. At one point they said, we would rather go back to slavery. See, the Israelites, they had lost sight of God's redemption and they were now focused on their circumstances. Are we in danger of that sometimes? Losing sight of God's redemption and focusing on our circumstances? It's crazy. I think we do that. The question is, is not will you be tempted to complain? That's going to happen. The question is, is when you're tempted to complain and gripe and argue, what are you going to do? Better question is this. How can we maintain a joyful attitude even in the face of difficult circumstances? 
How can we maintain a joyful attitude even in the face of difficulty? See, if we're going to find joy, we have to run to one place and one place alone. Joy is found in the good news of the Gospel. And here's why. The Gospel says, brothers and sisters, that you are far better off than what you deserve. Remember, the only thing that you and I have earned, the only thing that we deserve is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have to keep sight of this truth. We have to keep sight of the death and the resurrection of Jesus because when we lose sight of God's redemption, we'll go down this dark hole of complaining. Suppose you just won $1 billion today. It's not for me, but suppose you did win it. All you have to do is go downtown, Allegiant Stadium, and pick it up. I was just told this morning that there's tents all over the place. You can't even get in the parking lot. This is going to be a fight. It's going to be difficult. But you have $1 billion waiting for you at Allegiant Stadium, and you're on your way in the rain, and your car breaks down. All you got to do now is walk several miles to Allegiant Stadium. Forget the rain today. Imagine it's the middle of July and it's 115 degrees outside. Is this going to be a walk of joy or is this going to be a walk of, are you serious? Of course this would happen to me. I'm going to be one sweaty billionaire. What's your attitude? One of a complainer or one of gratitude? Church, in the same way, You and I, we only have one mile to go. We will see Jesus soon. We are not promised this afternoon. We are not promised tomorrow. And Jesus has promised that He will return for us. We have one mile to go. We might not have won a billion dollars, but we have something better. Jesus. Friends, as Christians, we are on a journey towards the ultimate prize, the fulfillment of our faith in the presence of the Lord. And it's true. Life is going to have its breakdowns. Life is going to have its detours. But when we keep our focus on the ultimate goal and prize, we can face the challenges that we face with gratitude, knowing that the best is yet to come. So with this in mind, Paul tells us, look, when you pepper your ordinary days with expressions of gratitude instead of expressions of complaining, he says this, that's when gospel culture begins to take place. That's when you begin to shine like gospel stars in the darkest of nights. Look at verse 14 through 15, and we'll finish up here. Actually, no, I got a little bit, but we're almost there. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God, underline that phrase, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Friends, are you shining like stars in a crooked and perverted generation? Again, underline this phrase, children of God. Friend, if you are in Christ, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, what you haven't done. It doesn't matter your background or your pedigree. It doesn't matter your sin, your past sin, your parents' sin. The truth of the Gospel tells us this, that if you are in Christ, then you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You have been adopted by a perfect Father. And the crazy thing is, you've done nothing to earn or deserve your way into the family. Kids are great. I have three. 
there's something exceptionally special about adoption. So the parent says this, I want that one. I choose that one. They're mine. Orphans don't choose who adopts them. The parent chooses. And God, friends, He has chosen you. He chose you even though you sat in your sin. Even though you were rebelling against Him. He chose you. And He saved you through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is growing you to live like Him and love like Him and lead others to Him. Church, this morning God is saying to you, you are My child. I chose you and I want you. You might say, John, how do you, how do you know? Well, consider Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4-6, through which says, For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus for Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He has lavished on us in the Beloved One. Consider also Galatians 4. Verses 4-6, through six, it says, when the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Well, to redeem those who are under the law. So that we might, what? Receive adoption as sons. And friends, because you are sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father, Brothers and sisters, Jesus, again, He lived a perfect life. A life that you could and, and have ch- could not and have chosen not to live. And in friends, Jesus, He died instead of you. Not just for you. He died instead of you to pay the consequence of your sin. Jesus rose from the grave. He is alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. Think about this. How could we complain? How can we play the victim? How can we fail? How can we ever gripe or grumble or argue? You are God's child. He chose you. He chose you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. And He wants to be in a relationship with you. Rest in these truths this morning and allow them to propel you to a life life of obedience in the same direction. As we live this life of obedience, Paul says, look back at verse 15, that's when you will shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. When we strive to avoid complaining, our language looks different from the rest of the world, doesn't it? Our words will stand out. Our lives will stand out. And then as we defend and proclaim the message of the Gospel, our words in that moment will have greater potency and power. I'm reminded of Colossians 3.16 where Paul instructs us, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And so mission, let's summarize it like this. Let's be a proclaiming church, not a complaining church. And here's why. If we are a complaining church, then we will be confusing to the world out here. Why would they ever consider the hope of the gospel if the gospel has not produced hope in you? Think about that. Why would they consider the hope of the Gospel if the Gospel has not produced hope in you? Rather, let's use words of gratitude and grace as we faithfully proclaim Jesus and the good news of the Gospel to the dark world. And as we do this, Paul says, do so with the end in mind. Verse 16, Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain. 
this phrase, the day of Christ, speaks to the truth that Jesus is returning for us. We sang about that earlier. And on that day, friends, we will stand before Him. And we will be complete. In fact, John tells us in 1 John 3, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And as we move towards that day, we labor for the sake of the Gospel. As we move towards that day, we strive for holiness. And as we do, we run with the purpose and the aim of allowing the Spirit of God to work in us and through us. And we can be confident that we will not be ashamed on that day when we stand before the Lord. Now, verses 17-18, through let's finish up the text. Paul says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. These last two verses, they're amazing. They're an incredible example to us. See, as Paul wrote this letter, he's in prison. He's suffering. He's in pain. But his focus isn't on those circumstances. They're on those realities. But rather, he's focused on the hope that we have in the Gospel. He's focused on his love for the, for the church. He, he desires that the church would be faithful and fruitful. And you see, Paul, he was happy to suffer in the name of Jesus for the advancement of the Gospel. Why? Because Jesus emptied Himself for Paul, and now Paul is emptying Himself for the glory of God. And Paul urges me and he urges you to do the same. That we would rejoice with him as we empty ourselves in obedience to the Lord. That we would leave here equipped with the good news of the Gospel to share our faith even when it's not received well. That we would be obedient in a world (laughs) that we're swimming upstream against. Why? Because Christ's mission to us as a church is worth it. And even more than that, Jesus is worth it. See, even in the midst of our current struggles, whatever your struggles may be this morning, the struggles of our economy and and our country, our circumstances, it doesn't matter the state of things. We can still find joy. We can still rejoice. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. He is on His throne and we can trust Him. And the good work that He began in us, friends, He will be sure to complete it. Brothers and sisters, Sisters, in Jesus, we are doing far better than we deserve. So let's root our joy in Him. Let's live in the shadow of the cross before the throne of God. Let's work out our salvation. Let's be shining witnesses to a dark world by not complaining, but rather by holding fast to God's Word. And finally, let's rejoice. Even in the midst of suffering as we anticipate the day in which we stand before the Lord. And we do so complete. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your salvation that You've given us by no work of our own. I pray, Lord, that You continue to work in the hearts and the lives present this morning, that they would find rest in You, find faith in You. I pray, Lord, that they'd be encouraged this morning to know that You are the one who started the good work. You're the one who will continue it, and You'll be the one that is sure to complete it, and we can trust You that even when things are difficult and circumstances are unideal, Lord, that You are still in control. Thank You for Your love and Your grace and Your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.